Welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. Looking ahead to 2023, there are some big changes on the horizon for livestock producers in the U.S. as the Food and Drug Administration will begin restricting over-the-counter sales of antibiotics nationwide. Now, the sheep industry has a lot on their plate currently, with extreme weather, economic concerns, and lamb prices all being pressing issues, so it could be easy to be caught unprepared for this upcoming regulation. Depending on a number of factors, including your current health management plan and existing state laws, the impact of this policy will vary across the industry. Regardless, knowing what to expect and the best course of action to navigate this new regulation will be critical. Luckily, sheep and goat extension veterinarian Dr. Rosie Bush from UC Davis is back with us today to provide clarity and work through all the details. Thanks for joining me again today, Dr. Bush. Yeah, thank you, Jake. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Uh, so you've been on before and you've discussed uh, vaccine protocols and uh, I think coccidiosis, we did an episode. Uh, but for those folks that unfortunately didn't get a chance to listen to those, uh, would you mind starting us off and, and giving us a little uh, further information about your current position and the various roles you play in the U.S. sheep industry? Yeah, so I am, like as you said, sheep and goat extension vet. I work at UC Davis at the School of Vet Med, and it's a statewide position, so I get to work with all the cooperative extension advisors. Um, my role in California is to uh, kind of translate a lot of the research that happens on campus and make it actionable on farms for sheep producers, goat producers. Um, but I also have a research uh, side to that as well. So I do applied research on farms and I have a couple projects going right now. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I'm. I've been in this position for three years now. It's hard to believe, but yeah, it's been amazing. And so, and then I also have responsibilities nationally. So I get to, I'm fortunate to be on the Animal Health Committee with uh, ASI and kind of fill different roles that way. Sure. So lots of things going yeah. on and lots of cool things, yeah. it sounds like. Well, we might as well just start from the top. Uh, can you can you state for us what the upcoming rules regarding antibiotic sales are and, and maybe provide a, a time timeline for when they'll be implemented? Yeah. So uh, FDA regulates all kinds of drugs, food, medical devices, things like that. And they have what's called guidance for industry. So they're not actual law changes. It's guidance for the um, companies or the manufacturers of these products. And in, gosh, when was it? It was in June of 2021, they passed the last guidance, which is the uh Two, it's 263. Um, and that one was the one that recommended that the sponsors or the people who manufacture these drugs label um, all medically important antibiotics as prescription instead of over-the-counter drugs. So it's a label change, which means that then we won't be able to see these medically important antibiotics um, over the counter at feed stores, or um, even if we're buying them online at you know things like Valley Vet, those online yeah, pharmacies, yeah. we'll see them there, but then we'll require a prescription in order to buy them. Okay. Now, just for for clarity, you know, you know, we talk about antibiotics, and and many people are very familiar with them. But 
just what products that uh, sheep producers traditionally use or are familiar with uh, will now require a, a prescription? Yeah. So the ones that we commonly see at feed stores um, are products like LA200, oxytetracycline is the drug, um, penicillin, um, and then there may be others like teramycin ointments and things like that that we're used to seeing. Um those are the most common ones. There's sulfa drugs um, and gosh, there's other over-the-counter inter- so like intramammary antibiotics that yeah. would require any kind of prescription, um, Thailand, any of those that, yeah. So there's um, other drugs that are considered antibiotics but aren't considered medically important and those would be... Um, Things like lasalicid or any of those coccidiomonensin, those types of coccidiostats, um, sure. but which is can be a little bit confusing because co- we think of sulfas as coccidiostats, yeah. but they're also put into the antibiotic, the medically important antibiotic class. So, okay, yeah, it's not very simple, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's good. That's why we're talking about yeah, it, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, now I, I was kind of doing a little bit of, of, of research ahead of time, and, and you know I kept coming across this VCPR veterinary client patient relationship. Uh, can you explain to, to to me and to our listeners what exactly a, a VCPR is? And and the, I, my understanding is they vary from state to state. Is is that right? Yeah. So in order for a veterinarian to write a prescription, they legally have to have a veterinarian client patient relationship. And like you said, so there is a federal definition um, and there are states can have their own definition, but it has to be approved by the federal. Basically, it has to meet the federal requirements, but some states decide to go above and beyond that. Um, So that's where it's important to make sure in your state you understand what a VCPR means. Um, kind of basically in general, it means that the veterinarian is familiar with you and your operation, your animals. Um, It usually requires a visit. uh, And that's where it can vary state to state is how often that visit is, what that visit entails. um, And that the veterinarian, also the client has to give that veterinarian permission to treat the animals and be involved in decision-making. So it's, it's a relationship. It goes both ways. Um, and then usually um, records are maintained at some level, whether it's the veterinarian. Some states require veterinarians to keep all of those treatment records. Um, that's pretty common. And then whether there's record requirements for the producer, that one is not, that wouldn't be a federal definition for the producer to be maintaining those records necessarily. So, Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know we're talking about this this new guidance. Uh, can you maybe shed a little light on on the history of, of policies or, or previous guidance recommendations uh, that the FDA has has recommended that kind of led us to this point that we're at? Yeah. So, gosh, back. I mean, antibiotics came. You know, were invented and used since the forties. Um, and as soon as we started using them, we started noticing bacteria becoming resistant to them. So it didn't take long. Um, what became really concerning is that the level of antibiotic resistance has started to grow, um, especially to 
bacteria that cause really kind of life-threatening infections to people. So in the 80s is when um, CDC really started monitoring antibiotic resistance in human hospitals at a certain level, only a certain like number of hospitals. Now it's nationwide. All hospitals are monitoring antibiotic resistance. So kind of in the 80s, um, that is when there was an antibiotic that was used in... um, Europe for growth promotion for swine. Um, and I can't remember the, act, the exact, gosh, it was related to vancomycin. I can't remember the, the drug that they were using, but it wasn't being used for therapeutic purposes. It was being used for production purposes. And it in Europe, that in Sweden, it was being linked to antibiotic-resistant infections to vancomycin, which is a really important antibiotic in people. Um, so they banned all antibiotic growth promoters in the 18 or 1986, um, and now in the European Union, all antibiotic growth promoters are banned, and they require a prescription for all antibiotics. So that's been going on for quite a while, and that so and then in the 90s, the U.S. started implementing policies to kind of monitor or more um, regulate antibiotic use and actually prohibit certain antibiotics for use. So if you know, Batril has to be used on label. It's illegal to use Batril off label. Um, and so labeling those drugs has changed quite a bit over the last 10, 20 years. Um, and so that is where a lot of those policies kind of started was in the 90s, and then it's evolved to where we are now. Okay. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up Europe because I, I was curious how this compared to kind of other international regulations or, or maybe even you know Australia, New Zealand. I, I didn't know if, if you had that information. Yeah. And I know in Australia and New Zealand, they do – they have similar – um, regulations. I only I know this is because I had a friend who practiced there, and they did have to record, um, basically keep an inventory of the antibiotics, and their vet had to you know make sure that it matched up, and then that way that when they needed new antibiotic, that they were kind of talking about what it was being used on. So it sounds pretty similar to what we yeah. are looking forward to here. Okay, and so it's it's really antimicrobial resistance uh, or, or buildup of that that is driving this regulation. Is, is that right? Yeah. So, and, and that's why it's coming from a federal um, level is more the concern for public health um, antibiotic resistance coming from the food supply. And there's a lot of research still kind of looking at that link um, because we know, you know, in the the U.S., we have a really safe food supply. We have a lot of control points in our production chain to try to limit any kind of bacteria going into our food supply, um, but it isn't foolproof. And so even monitoring of antibiotic resistance, I mentioned they do that at the hospital level in human hospitals. Since about the 90s, we've been starting to monitor at slaughter plants um, and retail meats, antibiotic resistant levels. Um, that are coming from the food supply. Okay. Uh, I kind of want to dive into that just a little bit more. How how do they monitor these levels? And and what are, you know, what are the latest reports uh, of the prevalence of this or or what level that we're at? Uh, You know, just kind of how far have we gone down this this road? Yeah. So basically how they're doing it is they're um, at the slaughter plant, they are 
getting not quite few. So it's sequel samples. So basically gut contents and they grow, they look for certain bacteria. So they're looking for Campylobacter, E. coli, um, Enterococcus, Phacium, and then Salmonella. Those are the big four. Um, they grow them in the presence of different levels of antibiotic and different types of antibiotic. And then where their um, level of growth Basically, bacteria should not grow in antibiotic. Um, and so as that level of antibiotic decreases, when they're able to grow, that's considered the minimum inhibitory concentration. So it's basically testing how much antibiotic it would take to actually st stop them from growing. Um, right. And the higher level of antibiotic it takes to stop them from growing, the more antibiotic resistance we have. And so those numbers, those are just lab numbers. And so they try to correlate those to actual levels that are achievable in animal tissues or human tissues. So it kind of, you know, it's not just a lab number. It should sure. make sense to what it would look like if we had to give an antibiotic to a person or an animal. That's kind of how that test works. Um, Recently, in the last couple of years, they've actually been monitoring with a genetic test. So they'll look for resistant genes. And so that has changed a little bit, some of the trends that we see. Um, but most of what we're seeing is there is a level of resistance out there. I don't know that there's been, you know, it's not like a huge upward trend or anything, but there's resistance we see to tetracyclines um, and a number of other drugs that, and there's um, the, the group, it's a three agency group between USDA, FDA, and CDC, and it's called the National Antibiotic Resistance Monitoring System, <laughs> and it, so they call yeah. it NARMS, and so there is a platform that you can look at online if anyone's curious, it's called NARMS Now, and you can see the different resistance trends. Unfortunately, sheep aren't even on there. <laughs> so, yeah. well, we're kind of used. Yeah. To <laughs> so they're definitely looking at cattle and poultry. Um, those are, and then swine as well. So, sure. yeah. So you know, one of the many reasons why you're the perfect guest to have on the podcast this month and, and discuss this is the fact that you're also in California, uh, as you mentioned earlier, and and that's a place that has had a similar regulation in place for a while. Yeah. Uh, so I I want to ask you what has been the impact of of this moving to full prescription on antibiotics so far. So one of when. California had this law change in 2018. So it was a little confusing because, as you guys may remember, uh, nationally, the VFD rule changed in 2017. So that was all um, antibiotics and feed that also banned um, antibiotics for growth promotion or medically important antibiotics for growth promotion. And then antibiotics and water all went prescription. So that was 2017 across the nation. And then in 2018, we had this law change in California that took all over-the-counter antibiotics under prescription. So we really had to get out there and do this big push to let people know it was coming and that it was different from what already happened. Um, there, it was a big challenge for because there is a veterinary shortage, and I know this is true across the nation. It's definitely true in California as well. Um, 
that was the biggest challenge was trying to get people connected to a veterinarian, um, understand what that relationship can look like, because I think there was a lot of fear about costs of services, um, misunderstanding about, you know, do veterinarians have to be the one to give the antibiotics and be there? And so really a lot of education about what these this type of relationship can look like. I mean, today it takes two months to get an appointment with a veterinarian. They're so busy and in short supply. So it, it, it could potentially have a big impact if they hadn't planned for it ahead of time. What it didn't change is folks who had a veterinarian, it didn't change anything for them because they, they have a veterinarian. They're more used to how to work within that relationship. Um, so it was kind of alleviating a lot of concerns for folks who already have a veterinarian and work with them. Okay. Yeah. So I'm also curious, was there, you know, some, some data in particular or information that the FDA kind of wanted to see in California before they went nationwide or was this always the plan? Um, you know, I just kind of curious if, if there was something that came out of that region that they said, yes, this is the direction we for sure need to go. No. So California kind of marches to its own drama, as I think everyone knows. Um, sure. So there was a lot of pressure from different groups um, to move on this sooner than FDA was going, if that makes sense. So, because FDA's um, judicious use of medically important, they have this whole um, guidance for industry on judicious use of antibiotics that came out in 2012. So they, you know, pushed the intentions to change things and all of that pretty early on. Um, but it takes understandably a while to make any kind of meaningful change because we need to make sure that everyone, that it, it, is evidence-based that it, you know, like there's a lot of checks and balances that happen at that federal level to get to where we are going in 2023. Um, California, it was a Senate bill that was put through um, and California saw it coming. So different animal industry groups and veterinary medical groups and, um, NGOs kind of worked on that bill together so that it 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 made sense that it was you know something that everyone could work within. Um, so that's that's why that one happened earlier was because of all the public pressure on that one. And I think that a lot of different groups in different states and federally were watching California to see how that would happen. But I don't know that it was ever like, oh, yeah, we'll just try this in California and see how it goes. Um, but, yeah, so I think that, you know, as far as how the education went and different programs around that uh, program, I think a lot of people were watching to see how it went. Sure. Yeah. Okay, uh, this is going to be a, a little tougher question, and I first want to, you know, upfront say that you know, animal health should always be a, a priority and not completely predicated upon economics. But pragmatically speaking, economics are an important part of of sustainable a uh, sustainable sheep industry, and and so. What's your advice or, or how do sheep producers navigate a scenario where a trip to the vet or having a vet come to the ranch or operation, you know, the, the cost of that may often exceed the value of the animal that's going to be treated. So, you know, I, I just wondering if you could share some thoughts or, or what you think 
is the best way for sheep producers to handle that situation so that it, animal health is still taken care of, but we still also think about the, the business side yeah. as well. Um, and I think it, you know, obviously when we're using antibiotics, we are typically giving them to individuals that are falling behind, maybe have foot rot. They're, they're you know, we tend to think of sheep health as flock health. Um, so when there is an individual that's kind of the first one showing signs that, you know, certainly they get that individual attention, but rather than thinking of about, well, this one you doesn't have the value that it would take to sure. call a veterinarian, think about the information gained from the services provided, from the information exchange that would provide flock health benefits to the entire group of animals. Um, and then also, I think, you know, changing our mindset for in, you know, having that outside perspective or different expertise um, can also, you know, provide a level of value for flock health in the future so that if there is something that comes up like that, you're prepared and you have that relationship and you may even have antibiotics on hand if that relationship is, you know, it, if it is able to work in that way to where your vet can prescribe you antibiotics for something that you've talked about that is, you know, common in your environment. And um, yeah, so I think it's understandable that an individual may not justify that cost of services. But when we look at the benefits of production and flock health uh, as a whole, that's where you can find value there. Okay. Now, just kind of thinking out loud, are, are there ways that you know, new technology can help potentially create a stronger, uh, you know, client veterinarian relationship, or even, you know, reduce the cost of, of some of this stuff too? Yeah, I think, I mean, gosh, our smartphones have been right, yeah, yeah. huge. And I know there's a lot of vets are busy and they're between clients a lot of times. So it can be hard to get a hold of your veterinarian sometimes. But I think that exchange is valuable for both sides. I know at least myself, and I'm sure this is true for others. When we go out and work with clients on cases, we want to know how they're doing. We want to know how the flock is doing. Um, so it's good to get that follow-up if things change. Um, and so, and sending pictures, those things can help that relationship, build that relationship stronger. And so, yeah, I think uh, it's basically, it's telehealth basically, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that was my question. Yeah. yeah. I think my, you know, last week my daughter had a, a little you know, fever and we were able to call a doctor, have a telehealth kind of video conference with a doctor in five minutes, as opposed to, you know, taking it into the, uh, urgent care. And, and that was a really neat thing, uh, really neat service yeah. to have on hand. And I don't know if that translates directly in, in all aspects of veterinary medicine, but, um, it certainly made me curious. If yeah. And the, each state regulates. So every state has a vet med board. And so that's what regulates veterinary practice in that state. And so that telehealth, how that um, the requirements of it and how it is able to work with it is going to be different for each state. In California, we can't establish a relationship over the phone. Um, but once a VCPR is in place, we can maintain that, like I said, with follow-up, if things change, if there's a need for another visit or so, you know, like all of that can be kind of determined over the phone. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
So within the context of, of animal health, uh, you know, what roles can extension professionals, uh, agents or, or, or specialists or, or whoever, what can they play that could maybe be beneficial to the sheep producer and or the veterinarian also? Yeah. So like I said, veterinarians can be pretty busy right now with the shortage and they're trying to provide all the services that they can in a, you know, all the hours of the day that they have. Um, I think extension has a really critical role in helping with educating producers on practices that can help prevent disease, um, practices that can promote health. Uh, I think we can help make connections between producers and veterinarians. Um, and I think we also provide a different level of um, a different perspective, even from the producer and the veterinarian and may be able to help bridge some of those connections. Um, okay. Yeah. So, Regardless of, of how this, uh, you know, new guidance or regulation may impact folks differently, I, I think it's still pretty clear that just going forward, reliance on antibiotics for treatment um, isn't something that we always want to lean on. You know, so what are some some steps that producers can take that can improve flock health ahead of time, or more of prevention as opposed to just responding to necessary treatment when it pops up? Yeah, I think. One thing that we maybe don't take advantage of as much is kind of really learning what sort of health challenges we have on our operations. Um, So, you know, if we do have losses, actually looking at those carcasses and learning from them um, and keeping records. So what are we seeing more pneumonia this year than last year? And, you know, is something changed and trying to actually understand what your baseline animal health is on your operation can really help figure out if there's something we can do to try to prevent that in the future. So, you know, Um, are we buying in a lot of replacement use when maybe we, you know, may not be able to grow as fast, but might have a more healthier outcome if we tried to grow within our own replacements if possible. And I mean, there's, that is just one example that might fit one (laughs) scenario, but I think there's, you know, there's a lot of examples where if we were able to understand what our challenges are, then we might be able to take a step back and see if there's something we could do that help prevent this in the next year. Um, right. Yeah. And I think it probably also, you know, emphasizes the need for a strong vaccine vaccination protocol, health protocol to be in place. Yeah, and good ahead yeah, of time. N- understanding what your nutrition, when your nutrition right, challenges yeah. might be, how you can best supplement those. And yeah, cool. Absolutely. So my understanding is that, uh, you know, the FDA has sort of had a, a timeline of actions, like you've mentioned, um, and that they've, that they've been following to reduce antibiotic use over time. So is this regulation for, in the context of, of livestock production, is this the final step or should the sheep industry be prepared for future regulations that may come up? I, I know this is sometimes hard to predict, but I'm just curious if, if this is it or, or if there's going to be more kind of coming down the road. 
Yeah, I so and you said something that I I always kind of cringe. And so I'm going to call you out on it. But and everyone Uh-oh. does. <laughs> no. Just when cuz a lot of times when we talk about these regulations, we talk about the intent or you know, being to reduce antibiotic use. And it seems like that's the intent, but the intent is to improve antibiotic use, if that makes okay, sense. Yeah, that, so yeah. use them when they're necessary, but don't use them when they're not, which is funny to say because we why would we use an antibiotic that's expensive you have to catch the animal if it wasn't necessary but that's where kind of this these changes are coming in to bring in some more oversight some more information and that leads to some of the future changes that fda um has put out there that they're looking at is one of them will be to revisit the list of antibiotics that are considered medically important um, I don't, I have a hard time believing that they'll be taking any off of that list. So it'll be, yeah, interesting to see what kind of evidence they use to kind of reevaluate that list. Um, so that is one thing that I know that they're working on. And then another one is a lot of it has to do with how these drugs are labeled. Um, and they're, are drugs that are labeled that don't have a recommended duration of use or labeled duration of use. And so they're looking at those drugs to see if there's a way that we they can put kind of an evidence-based duration on those um, labels. So, yeah, yeah. It's challenging. Interesting times. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so you you mentioned it earlier, and, and I'm going to ask you to to restate it if you don't mind. What what are some good resources for folks to go to if if they want to learn more about what's coming and and just about antimicrobial resistance, et cetera, et cetera? That's kind of all involved in this in this guidance and regulation. Yeah. So FDA is doing a big push to try to communicate to producers and veterinarians about what's coming. So you may see some of that coming out soon. Um, There are, um, gosh, so there's the national, it's called NIAMRI, the National Institute for Antibiotic Resistance Research and Education. They kind of pull together different groups and resources. So their website, it's NIA. M R R E, <laughs> and they they have some uh, resources. Um, I know that uh, ASI and there's a number of other um, industry organizations that have different resources about you know responsible antibiotic use. I know ASI in their sheep production handbook has a whole page you know whether it's a couple of pages, but about working with a veterinarian and responsible antibiotic use. Um, and yeah, going to your veterinarian, finding a veterinarian and your extension. I think those are really valuable resources that are real time and can actually help find, um, solutions that would work for individual operators. Sure. And also a little bit of difference from state to state information too, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Any, any final thoughts or... Can you leave us with a, a take-home message at least? Yeah. I mean, I think change is scary. Um, but from those that I've talked to in California, this didn't impact them as much as they thought it would. Um, so I would 
go into this with an open mind and, you know, hope that you make a great relationship with a great veterinarian and that you actually gain some benefit from this change when, you know, rather than thinking, oh, this is just going to be the hardest thing to adapt to. I think going into it and looking for the value uh, that you can gain from your operation would be a good way to approach this. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, actually, did we actually say when this change is going to (laughs) happen? We, uh, I'm not sure. We may have. But we might as well restate <laughs> yeah. June 2023. So that's when all over-the-counter antibiotics will become prescription. So June 2023. Yeah. Okay. We have a right. year. That's, that's a, that was a really important detail. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that you brought that Great. up. Well, uh, Dr. Bush, thank you very much for, for being on the podcast. Uh, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I appreciate you sharing that uh, with us today. It, it's been a pleasure having you back on. Thank you, Jake. It's my pleasure. Thank you to all of our listeners, too, uh, for joining us on this July edition of the ASI Research Update. Uh, as always, I ask you uh, to help us get the word out and share this episode with your friends, uh, your colleagues, uh, social media followers, or anyone that maybe doesn't even fit in, in those categories. Uh, but until we're back next month, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, go have a cup of coffee with your veterinarian. Uh, And despite any hardships, let's remember to be thankful for this unique lifestyle which she provides us and that so many less fortunate than us never get to experience. Have a good day.